Okay, Duncan, thanks very much for uh, spending some time with me today. Anytime, Kevin. It's good to see you. Uh, you know, the work that you do and that your company does, of course, has become front and center as a result of the pandemic. I mean, it was always there. It was always important. From my coverage of the education space, sometimes it was almost seen as maybe a luxury or and, and also have uh, or, or an add-on. Obviously, it's become front and center. Uh, another phrase that I would always hear and kind of nod my head and lots of people nod their heads is the idea of blended learning and what blended learning means in the education space. You recently penned a blog up, up on your site talking about blended mental health. So it's taking those two components and bringing them into one. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you wrote in that and how it's uh, you know part and parcel of what you do with your work. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'll go back and I'll address your, your first point about you know, mental health maybe historically being seen as a, as, a, as a nice to have. I think there's always been a recognition on the part of the education system that of course mental health is important. I think for a long time, mental health was seen as a challenge to be solved by our healthcare system with kind of the um, education system playing a facilitation and kind of a referral role, making sure that, that students have access to the right resources. I, I think what we've really seen over the last five to 10 years is a real change in the mindset in a lot of school districts where they're looking to play more of an activist role in terms of the, uh, how they're visualizing the role of the school system as it pertains to mental health, not just as a referral mechanism to the outside healthcare system, but really as a prime delivery point. Uh, and it makes sense. If you think about where students are spending the majority of their waking hours, it's in a school. So uh, you know what, what better place to deliver equitable uh, mental health care um, and to provide easy access to mental health care, uh, but from a, from a school setting. Yeah. To your second question on, um, on, on more of a concept of blended mental health care, you know, as that expression goes, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think when COVID occurred last year, providers like us that had traditionally done uh, all of our clinical service delivery in person, were really in a position where we had to reinvent our delivery models in order to use uh, uh, telemental health, in order to use remote technology. So what we really you know, thought of, and I, I come from a background working more on kind of the education and curriculum side, we kind of looked at you know, what worked with a blended model in kind of education delivery. And we thought about how we could really adapt that to you know, the world of, of mental health care delivery as, as well. Um, and specifically blended mental health and this concept of a flexible model that uses both in-person and technology-based delivery. It was really important this year more than any other year because the opening status of a district could change on a month-to-month -month or even a week-to-week -week basis. So we needed to have a set of processes and systems so that if you know on September 10th you were in-person, we could be in-person with your students delivering services. But on September 17th, if your school or district went into quarantine, or a portion of your student body went into quarantine, we needed to have the ability to kind of pivot pretty seamlessly and do some of that uh, remote remote delivery. Yeah. Uh, do you see these dynamics sticking around now that we have vaccines and people are hopeful that, you know, maybe coming this fall, uh, things will be, you know, back to normal, whatever normal is? I mean, are these techniques something that will, you think will be sustained even though we're, you know, we're not in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, I, I do for sure. And, and I, I think really, to me, it comes back to a set of questions around equity and access to mental health care. So where I think 
technology is really going to play a role and where, where it has played a, a big role in the past few years is in, um, you know, providing um, mental health care delivery to uh, remote areas, to rural areas, to urban areas where it might be harder to, to uh, you know, find a, a qualified provider. So that type of equity and access, I think, has been a really big trend that we would expect to only see accelerate. I think the twist that we've put on it is, you know, our our, our mental health care delivery, if you think about a multi-tiered systems of support model, we typically operate at the highest or most intense level of care, what we would call a tier three level of care for those students with the most intense emotional and behavioral challenges that a district serves. Um, I would say that uh, remote delivery of mental health has been fairly well established over the last, let's say, five years for more of a tier two level of care, students with more mild to moderate challenges. What I think we've really demonstrated in the last year is that you can provide a really high quality level of support even at the tier three level if you have the right processes and the right systems in place. So that, that acceleration and that increased acceptance of the use of uh, remote telemental health for serving our most at-risk and our highest need students that's an area that I expect to see kind of more of a, a, a permanent change. We always like to be with those students in person, um, you know, because we feel like with those big behaviors and with, with students that really have those most intense challenges, it, it makes the most difference with them if we could be in person. But I think what we've demonstrated in the last year is that you can provide a really good and really positive level of support uh, remotely as well. Now, you know, the kind of the, the common trope right now is everyone is tired of Zoom meetings, right? And kind of tired of this communication and in the, in the way in which we're having it right now. And uh, I assume that that's the same in the education space. Obviously, everyone wants to be back uh, person to person. But did you discover any dynamics um, when it comes to delivering mental health where this platform might even be advantageous over in person? Yeah, I would say in the, it's a great question. I would say in the heart of the, of the, in those really scary first couple months of the pandemic where everybody was just trying to figure out what was going on in the world around them, parents, you know, were struggling just as much as, as students. So we, we have what we call a wraparound model where we're doing individual therapy with students, but also doing a lot of family work as well. And, and we actually tracked this and had data to show it. We were actually doing more interactions, more therapeutic interactions and kind of coaching sessions with parents those first couple of months of the pandemic than we even were with students. So literally many of our parents, we would talk to daily, you know, talking about how to, how to kind of, you know, manage student stress, anxiety, behaviors, kind of, uh, et, et cetera. So, um, so I, I would say that was definitely one trend that we saw um, was the ability of, um, you know, remote methods to increase interaction with parents. Because if you're relying on a totally in-person model, you're constrained by, you know, a, a parent or caregiver's uh, job or the hours associated with their occup occupation. So we've actually seen overall parent engagement go up over the last year as a result of the incorporation of technology into our model. Yeah, that was one of the points you, you, you put out in, in your blog, talking about how important that family connection is uh, when it comes to the overall mental health. And I'll say just anecdotally with myself, I've spoken more to teachers and counselors of my own kids over the past 12 months than I have ever, right? I mean, yeah. they would have in-person consultations and maybe I was the last to know, and maybe sometimes that's okay, but uh, it's 
much more important to have that that communal thing. So there's so there's another one. I mean, that becomes part and parcel of your your services now that it will it, it, maybe it always did have a focus on the family, but even more so. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The focus on the family has been a constant. I would say the uh, piece that we're really trying to bake in going forward is being more flexible about the use of technology with parent and caregiver engagement to kind of meet them where they are. And so um, we would always love to see a parent or caregiver in person, but for those situations where it's not possible, we feel like we've now got a much more robust toolkit of kind of connectivity mechanisms to be able to, to reach out to those parents and to, to stay in touch with them. So another tip that you had uh, in your blog was about not being afraid to throw away the script. I think we all have had that experience in, in one way or the other the past, the past year and a half. Uh, but go a little deeper into that. I mean, because I know that, you know, in your field and well, public education, number one, number two, when you're talking about mental health, you have lots of protocols, you have lots of procedures, uh, you have lots of bureaucracy in terms of maybe if you're talking about IEPs and, and other things in the procedures in, in which you weigh, you document uh, and assess a student. Uh, yep. Gets kind of tough to throw away the script in, in those circumstances. So uh, is, is there a middle ground there or is there some is there something evolving there that maybe it won't be as rigid going forward? Yeah, I mean, I mean, so, you know, I, I would I would just go back anecdotally to kind of like, you know, what our world was looking like in our organization on maybe February 25th of last year. So at that point, you kind of had a sense that kind of, you know, bad things were coming our way with the pandemic. Um, at that point, we didn't know when closures were going to happen. It turned out that was about three weeks out. But that last week of February, we really kind of went into stand down mode and basically, you know, literally had the throw away the script conversation. And I, I remember it distinctly. We kind of, you know, went, went to had our clinical leaders kind of pull together as an organization, got together in someone's office, blank whiteboard, and basically said, okay, given the constraints that we have around kind of um, uh, yeah, technology usage, around you know availability of students and parents, around what the different scenarios around school opening or school closure might look like, and around kind of you know federal regulations and state regulations as it pertains to IEP compliance. Um, what, what is what is the model that we want to kind of put a stake in the ground and and kind of lay this out as the model and train our staff and we created that model in probably about a week right uh, probably about that last week of February spent the first week of March training our our staff and then also spent the first week of March socializing it with a couple of our customers a couple of our district partners um, you know assistant superintendents superintendents directors of special services. And just kind of asking them to be critical friends with us and to really sanity check our plan. And we, we had a, a lot of good guidance uh, from those folks on kind of, um, uh, you know, IEP compliance, things of that nature. I, I would say that at that point, Kevin, they, did, they didn't really know what the federal regulations were going to be, you know, kind of on that. There wasn't clear a clear indication at that point as to whether or not virtually delivered services would be considered an acceptable substitute for things that were written into an IEP as more of a face-to-face -face service. So, you know, and as, as, it, as it kind of played out, you know, states and the federal government really, I think, started to focus more on the, just get the support, don't hold back support because you're not 100% sure that it's gonna be down to the letter of the IEP, just go and, and get students in need the support that they, that they need. But, 
But back in the month of March, there was a real sense of ambiguity, I think, across the board in terms of what those regulations were going were gonna to be. So, you know, and, and, you know, it's always good, I think, to have a true north and kind of a key set of guiding principles in those types of situations. So when you have a gray area, you can make the right decision. And for us, that true north was just do right by the student. When in doubt, do right by the student and do the right thing so that students are getting the support that they need. And, and that, I think, served us well during that time. And then just once we get through it, then you sort it out, sort it out then, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And also good in a situation like this to have really good experts. You know, we, we've got a we had a very strong lawyer who helped to advise us on just the regulatory landscape and, and kind of what district obligations were, what our obligations were. So having that kind of expert advice, you know, uh, present at the table when you're making these decisions, always very important as well. Yeah. You touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation uh, about uh, delivering mental health services to uh, rural districts and, and other maybe underserved communities. Uh, some of the districts that I've spoken to uh, in those communities have found that they've actually, by virtue of telehealth, been able to provide more services than they ever have before, because especially you'll have some, some districts where you'll have one counselor for a thousand kids, right? And there's no way that one counselor is going to be able to effectively handle and, 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 and treat and, and, and work with that number. Using telehealth, you, you can have the opportunity to maybe increase the number of counselors, even if it isn't a remote situation, right? But also enable those counselors to have more students that they can meet. Talk a little bit about that. Have you seen that dynamic work out at all? Yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely I think it's definitely accurate that um, uh, technology delivery can um, introduce some efficiencies that can help to increase caseloads. I think the counter to that is we always kind of advise districts to make sure that you are um, uh, correlating your maximum caseload defined as kind of you know number of students per clinician to the intensity of the of the student. So. You know, I, I think there is a point above which caseloads become so great that it's just not, it's not, it's, you, you reach a point of diminishing returns in mm. terms of the therapeutic benefit for students. And that's particularly true with your, um, with your tier three students, those students I mentioned before that have the, the most intensive challenges. Um, for our tier three model, we really try to keep our caseloads very low, usually, you know, eight to one, nine to one, 10 to one, somewhere in there. Um, you know, whereas there are some providers that are out there, you know, with a, with a, you know, 35 to one, 40 to one, 45 to one. And I think at some point you look at the number of hours in a week and it's a question of, you know, breadth versus depth. You can serve more students, but at some point the depth of interaction that you're going to have with those students just as a function of the number of hours available in a week is going to have to go down. And so the real caution I think we would have for all districts right now is be careful about serving students at a higher level of need with a lower level of service. So in other words, if you are trying to serve a tier three student with a tier one or a tier two um, model of intervention, you're not necessarily gonna do any harm with that student, but you're probably not going to have the therapeutic impact that you wanna have on that student to be able to deescalate them and bring them down to a lower level of care over over time. And in the worst case scenario, 
we could be leading to a situation where the challenges faced by that student are being exacerbated and they require a higher level of care referral at some point in the in the future. So that's just one of the key principles behind multi-tiered systems of support, response to intervention. Um, it's, it's really uh, making sure that we have uh, the level of intervention and the intensity of intervention being provided corresponding to the appropriate level of need that the student's demonstrating. And this kind of brings us back to um, my original question and talking about the idea of blended learning. Uh, it, it, in your response there, I, I get the sense that a, a fully remote solution is not one that's optimal for, for any student. There really needs to be at some point a certain amount of in-person interaction, right? Yeah, I think, I think it goes back and it depends on the level of care. I think for a tier two intervention, for example, we would see virtual delivery as an acceptable substitute for in-person delivery. We'd always prefer to have a blend or we'd prefer to have in-person, but we would look at virtual as being, um, you know, virtual as, as being kind of an acceptable, as acceptable substitute. When you get to the tier three level, what we've shown over the last year is that virtual can be an acceptable substitute for kind of a fixed period of time. But over the long term, we would believe that you really need to have an in-person component in place for those students who are demonstrating the highest level of need. That's really what we would see as the, the ideal. So I think the answer to your question, again, with it kind of similar to my previous response, it really depends on the level of care and the tier of care within a multi-tiered systems of support framework that you're delivering. Yeah. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for, for your insights. Uh, we covered a lot of ground there in about 20 minutes. Uh, your work is uh, obviously hugely important, especially during this time. And hopefully, I think, it, it seems that it will uh, take a greater uh, position when it comes to education in general. The more educators I, I talk to is you can't learn if you're not if you don't feel safe, you can't learn if you're not in a state of a general mental health and that uh, that comes first now. And I think that that has been a, a really big switch uh, that I've uh, I've come to discover during the pandemic and in my coverage. So the work that you're doing is, is uh, obviously hugely important. And I think um, the ideas that you're sharing uh, will be able to be spread around. So uh, appreciate your time. Anytime, Kevin. Thank you for all you're doing and, and kind of uh, giving voice to a lot of the different innovations that are taking place out there. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Have a great rest of your day. Great. Thank you. And thanks everybody for watching. We'll see you at the next one.